you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, here today with Sarah Masaryk, as usual, and we have some of our ladies from BiblioGuides, Larry Everino, Tonya Arnold, and Sarah Kim. And today we also have with us one of our library ladies, Christy Stansfield. Well, Diane, we also have a special guest today. People will probably hear Yuna in the background, and that's just exactly the way we like it. We're delighted every time Yuna makes a contribution to our conversations and hope that you are as well. So friends, today we are back with another one of our monthly book clubs. And as we have said before, and we'll say every time probably, this is one of our most favorite things to do is to get together with friends and talk honestly about what we think about what we've read. And I I use the word honestly because today we have a variety of responses to this book. Now we've talked very, very minimally behind the scenes because we want to preserve everybody's reactions. But we have a sense of who likes the book and who doesn't. And so, as usual, we invite you to listen in as we kind of set the table, get things situated for this book club. And then we'll tell you when the spoilers are going to begin because the whole point of this is it's going to have spoilers. We're going to get into the nitty gritty of it all and it's going to be a real book club, friends. So for now, Join us as we kind of set the table, talk about the book club a little bit, and then we'll let you know when to pause and save this episode for another time once you've got your reading done. So today, friends, we've included Christy Stansfield in this book club discussion because she really likes these kinds of books, and I thought I might need backup. (laughs) Because I really like this book. Um... And not everybody necessarily agrees with me. So I, I figured that Christy might be a good friend to have in my corner. So Christy, you've read this book several times. Do you remember when was the first time you read it and what you like, what was your knee-jerk reaction then? And how does it compare to today? Well, I've always been a lover of science fiction. I may not have chosen this book because of the title, thinking that it was fantasy. Mm. But I think... I don't remember who, but someone mentioned the book and said it was science fiction. It was very good. Mm. So I read it. I probably checked it out of the library and I loved it. Mm. It wasn't really about fantasy. Right. It was not an enchantress. So I read it and I loved it and I had my kids read it and it was, it was just, that's, that's what we did then. And then I put it away, but I've always loved it and I've always told people about it. But I didn't take it out again until very recently when you said you were going to do this. (laughs) I was like, yay, Yay. good excuse. I'll take it out again. So, And then you had a different reaction this time. Without giving any spoilers or getting into it too much, what did you think this time? Yeah. And this time I listened to the audio for two-thirds of the book. And I'm not typically an audiobook listener anyway, Mm. although during the time the kids were home, we listened to a lot of them, but I I usually prefer to read on my own because I can read at my pace and think my things and hear my voices and all that kind of stuff. But I think they picked a really good narrator for the book, but therein might lie the problem. Oh, I can't wait to hear what (laughs) you mean. (laughs) Yes. That just kind of pointed something out to me that maybe I hadn't caught. Awesome. 
the first time around. Awesome. That'll be fun to unpack. So hang on to that thought and we'll come back to that one. So, Laura, you've read this before. So I think I read it the first time about two years ago. So it hasn't been as long. I was looking back at a review I wrote and I had more positive than negative things to say about it the first time I read it. Mm -hmm. I still can make a big distinction between a book I really like and a book that I think would cause really good conversation. Ah, yeah. There might be things that irritated me about this book, Mm -hmm. but I still think it's a worthwhile read because it stimulates really, really good conversation. And I'm kind of the opposite of Christy. I like fantasy better than science fiction. Mm. I still like science fiction a lot, but I would have loved it to be more Enchantress and less stars. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and this is why I've always said to you, I think you need to read Elantris because I feel like Elantris is your thing. And okay. When you All do, right. we'll talk. It'll, it just got bumped up one <laughs> on my right. list. And I'll have to, I'll have to read it too yes. because I'll have the opposite reaction and then we can, right. we can meet again. <laughs> and rehash this, stars or Enchantress. <laughs> yep. I love it. So now... Sarah, Diane, and Tanya, for all of you, this was a first read, correct? Am I right about that? Yes. Yes, yeah. first time. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Sarah, what did you think of this? Yeah, so like Laura, I love fantasy. Um, I do like science fiction most of the time, and I loved this book. Uh, I listened to the audiobook. Um, we can get into this when we're ready to talk about spoilers, but I missed sort of a key <laughs> piece when I was listening to the audiobook I must have got distracted for just a minute and then I realized like about halfway through oh (laughs) that was a (laughs) bit interesting when I first started listening to the audiobook it took me a little bit to appreciate the book because the narrator is the same narrator who narrates where the crawdad sings which I listened to and I hated it so much (laughs) I had to get over that powerful association going (laughs) on yeah (laughs) Boy, you really took one for the team there. (laughs) I know, I did. (laughs) I have never read that one, so I really, I can't even, (laughs) don't. (laughs) Oh, I started it and I thought I cannot Mm -hmm. go down this road. Mm -hmm. Well, and the ending is the worst part. I was like, okay, maybe it's okay. It's okay. And then I got to the ending and I was like, I hate this book. (laughs) (laughs) I love that today we are (laughs) calling it as we see it, girls. I love it. (laughs) Tanya, what about you? This is your first reading. What did you think? Is this normally in in your genre? Do you like these kinds of books? Yeah. So this was my first read. I hadn't heard of it, except Laura tells me that she did talk to me about it a few years ago when she was reading it which just shows you how many things we talk Mm -hmm. about because I could not recall that conversation (laughs) and she laughed. Um, I love science fiction in the medium of movies and television Mm -hmm. shows. I don't typically read science fiction and a few that I have read were very poignant and left big Mm -hmm. impressions, but I felt like they were difficult Mm -hmm. reads. Uh, For example, Ender's Game is one that I read that left me sitting for months just thinking about it. I do love science fiction, and I really, 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 really love Star Mm -hmm. Trek. (laughs) Me too. So much. Primarily The Next Generation and then Voyager, and I just think that Jean-Luc Picard is the man. Mm -hmm. This has parallels, and so I loved Uh, it. 
so much. Yes. So, Diane, my friend, we assumed that you weren't going to like this one. We being you and me. (laughs) (laughs) Because we know each other well enough to know that this is not your favorite style. There really aren't very many genres that I would say, I don't like this or that's my favorite. And as far Mm -hmm. as fantasy and science fiction goes, this is fantasy because it's not on our world. And it's science Mm -hmm. fiction because they're in spaceships. But I don't Mm -hmm. think either one of those elements would have had really much to do with how I felt about the book. Because it's not science fiction where some of them, there's so many weird things going on. And if you don't understand a lot of science or, you know, some astronomy or whatever it is that makes you feel like you're just not quite smart enough to figure out what's going on, that's not this. Right, right. It's also not fantasy in the way that the author is trying so hard to create another world. You don't get a real big description of, I I want you to see the world like I'm seeing it. And aren't I so clever? It's just people that stuff is happening to. And they just happen to not be on Earth. Right. A little bit like some of the good Star Trek in that regard, where it's like, wow, look, they're they're humanoids on planets that are M-class planets that look and feel just like ours. Right. (laughs) Because look at that. They're just like us. And one thing I do agree with Tanya about those is Captain Picard, because although I grew up on the old Star Trek, Captain (laughs) Captain Kirk Kirk was such a disappointment. Yeah, (laughs) because that's just not my kind of guy. And so when Picard came along, I went, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's that's what it should have been all along. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a a gentlemanly Spock as a captain. Yeah, yeah. Now, and you are not out when it comes to science fiction because you genuinely love C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, Paralandra in particular, which is really otherworldly. Am I right in saying that? Yes, I do. And But also, I don't feel like that's science fiction in the way that a lot of science fiction is, where, again, it's just stuff happening on a different planet. There are some right. different creatures there, but there's not sciencey stuff that makes it hard to figure out what's happening. Right, exactly. That was why I thought that this one might have a chance, because I feel like this one has some overlap with what Lewis was doing. Hmm. Convince me. (laughs) One thing that I think was fascinating, because I love what Diane is saying, is it's not a traditional fantasy. It's not a traditional science fiction book, because you're not so immersed in those elements. Those are just kind of the background elements. But to me, that was the the power Mm -hmm. of it, was that, to me, this is a book of ethics. And you could use this in an ethics course, especially for high schoolers, maybe middle schoolers. And so what you're doing is you're removing... It from our world so that you can actually look at it objectively right. without having an emotional impact upon you personally and, and your defense mechanisms go up. Right. So if you can remove a person's defense mechanisms and set it completely over here in this other place, this isn't about right. us. We're having this conversation about this society over here. But then as you get into it and your, your defenses haven't gone up, then you have the opportunity to say, oh, wait, mm. are there parallels does, here? What can I take yeah. do with this? So I thought... It kind of lays that groundwork. I think that only works the first time you read it. That's the the thing about reading it more than one time is you lose that distance. Yes, you've made the connections and now your defenses are back up again. I love what you're saying there, Lara. So just to recap, Christy, you've read it two or three times. At least twice. 
possibly three. Okay. And Lara, you've read it twice. I've read it three times. And Tanya and Sarah and Diane have read it once. So this is a really nice representation. It's a good, we'll have a, we have a good spectrum here of experience and we have a good spectrum of age and uh, like preferred genres. And so this is good. This one will be balanced. So with that, let me do some housekeeping. So friends, we are thrilled that you're listening and we would love for you to listen if this is what you want to do right now, whether you've read or not. But if you haven't read, we warn you now, spoilers are coming. They're coming right now. So from this moment forward, what you're going to want to do is go ahead, pause the podcast and save this um, or have the spoilers invade your memory (laughs) so that when you're reading, you're going to have us in your head. It's your call. But no matter what, we would love to invite you to join the conversation. We love to be able to talk to each other and consider it a real joy and a privilege. But it is really so much more fun when you join into that conversation. So we invite you. Join us in the BiblioGuides online community. It's a mighty network. And you are so welcome to join. It's free. There's a Plumfield Reads group inside of that group. And in there, you can find the book club discussion for this. And whether you're listening to this right when it airs or six months from now or two years from now, we invite you, go find the links. We'll try do our very best to keep them live and active for you. And join in anytime because having conversations come back to life is really, really fun. So thank you for being here. Consider joining us in the conversation. And this is your cue that spoilers are starting. I think there's a lot of you chomping at the bit. Who's dying to go first here? <laughs> I got to say something real quick or I'll lose it. And that's old age here. <laughs> go for it, Christy. It, it came to me that after I read it the first time, I think one of the reasons I gave it to my kids was because this author makes it really obvious what she thinks. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are not a lot of hidden motifs or or thoughts or subtexts or anything. She's pretty much in your face. And so, you know, true confession here, I'm a reader for enjoyment. Yes. I I was always carried along by a good story. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't a good story, I wasn't interested. That's, I guess, once again, book reports were the, (laughs) the, you know, just don't even go there. Right. And uh, the best way to destroy a good book. Amen. So I was reading along for the story. But at that point, I realized how easy it would be for other people who have a difficult time, you know, teasing out threads in a story, which I always had Mm. trouble doing. Mm -hmm. It would be easy for them. Mm -hmm to actually get the point. Yeah. When I handed it to my kids, I wanted to see what they could get out of it because they were in that age range, Ah. which I thought was kind of interesting that she seemed to be very definite on who her books were written for. She was very careful about the age group that she was pointing her books toward. Let me just confirm what you're saying there. So this is taken from Sylvia Engdahl's autobiography essay. It's called The essay is called Autobiography, and it's on her website, and it's linked in our review. So if you want to go check it out, you can do that. And here's what she says. I didn't feel Enchantress would ever be publishable. It wasn't the sort of book that could appear as an adult novel, though I felt some adults would like it. Yet it was over the heads of most readers below teenage, 
and seemed far too long and complex to be called a children's book, at least by the standards of the 50s and 60s. But the story took a hold of me, and I simply couldn't leave it alone. The book was accepted, after some revision, went on to be a Junior Literary Guild selection and a Newbery Honor book. I was fortunate in having written it just at a time when a trend toward issuing more mature fiction as young adult was beginning. For, of course, Enchantress was never intended for pre-adolescent children, and its Newbery Honor status was therefore somewhat misleading. Yep. So that was, that was then. And then now I'm reading it differently. And it is different, but it, it's still pretty obvious. And that I think is very helpful when, when you're a reader that doesn't really get the point a lot of times. I sensed that this wasn't an adult mm-hmm. book. This was a book to let a teenager go through the struggle. And I think particularly it was to let them walk with the characters through struggles that would be specific to a person of that developmental age where they want to write things in a certain way. Like they're rash, just like Alana, like her youth caused her to be overly optimistic. It caused her to be rash and she needed the mentoring of her father to help guide her through some complex things. And I think you'll see teenagers and young adults, like they have to mature where they can see a bigger picture and not just what they see in the moment. Like There's a moment where Alana and Joran are talking and she basically tells them that there are greater things at stake than my life or your Mm -hmm. life. Well, that's sometimes a really hard concept to see. And so I think while she walks you through it, she at the same time challenges a lot of ideas through the experiences of the characters as the characters are moving along. And I thought this is really powerful to help a teenager start to challenge their own ideas as they're having emotions through the story of what's happening as to what do they think is right? Yeah. What do they think of Alana's decision to, to share or to not mm-hmm. share? Or one quote that I really love is when she goes into the village and she's horrified oh. by the things that she's seeing that the society is doing and she wants to protect them. And she says to her dad, she's so mad. And, and who wouldn't, especially a young mm-hmm. adult, mm-hmm. right? But it doesn't explain why we can't devise some way to correct obviously unnecessary evils without revealing ourselves, I protested. How would that be any different from what we're already doing? So they're already here to intervene. So why can't they intervene in all these other ways? And he says to her, oh, I just loved the Mm -hmm. father. I hope you all agree. I just thought he was great. He said, there's an essential difference. We are permitted to step in only when nothing else can prevent extinction of the youngling race. And what's more, protecting younglings' civilizations from each other is not at all the same as attempting to protect them from themselves. But Alana, that's beside the point. The real issue here is the whole concept of obviously unnecessary evils. Who are you to say that human suffering is unnecessary? Mm -hmm. And they don't answer that. Mm -hmm. That question just kind of gets left hanging through the story. And I thought, well, that's right. Is Is there something good and true and right? from human suffering? That's a question that you will spend your whole life deciding. And I think it speaks also to the fact that the planet needs to develop. We do not thrive or strive when we're comfortable. Adversity is necessary um, in order to cause people to reach for something greater. And if everything was handed to them, I don't think that that would protect them in the long run. I think it would be so easy for some other colonial imperialist planet to come in and just 
impose their will by giving them things that they want and then never letting them develop the way they're supposed to develop. I just want to say, so the reason I didn't research the author was that I didn't want to know whatever her religious or political oh, yeah, views for were. Sure. I just felt like if I could read this book and take it on my own yeah. terms, then that would be better for me rather than being influenced in regards to what I thought she yeah. believed. And that doesn't have to have any sort of an impact on me in future reading. So I'm just going to ignore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to ignore yeah. that for that sake. And then the other thing, just in regards to what you just said, Sarah, is that that's the very thing that happens as a parent, especially once you have yeah. teenagers, is that you can't just give mm -hmm. to them. Like they have to have experiences and you have to allow consequences for them to actually become the people that they need to become. Like what do we want to do as parents? Right. We want to protect them. We want to take away the pain of X, Y, Z decision. Well, and this is the power of story. We want our teenagers to come of age. And one of the ways they can come of age is by reading stories like this, where they are, they care about the characters and they become stretched and challenged. And that then prepares them so that when they actually go through things that will stretch and challenge them, they have some of this in, the, in their minds and hearts that will help to guide them. That's one of the things that felt a little bit uh, contrived to me, maybe. I knew you were going to say um, contrived. Well, I'm trying to think of a way. To me, the characters were a little bit stiff. And mm. the father, as admirable as he was, was kind of um, set up. Here's our wise mentor person who also happens to be her dad. So they're really close. And yes, we want our kids, they have to make mistakes and he's letting her do that. But with this really serious project that the outcome could ruin worlds. And so that was just a little bit off to me where, um, okay, you just took an oath to do to be totally obedient. <laughs> we know she's not going to. He knows she's not going to. She knows she's not going to. Oh, well, what if it blows up the entire thing that we're trying to do? Eh, could happen. And I was just unimpressed with some of those elements. Like, obviously, she's going to be disobedient. And then it, well, maybe this is too early to say, but, and in the end, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that's okay that you were disobedient because really, we don't want you to be just unquestioningly obedient. We want to use your brain, even if it gets people killed and, you know, stuff happens. So there's part of my problem. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> what? I'm so there. I'm so there. Okay. This is exactly why I do not read coming of age mm. fiction. It drives me crazy. It is so painful. It's just so painful. And and I just, I usually avoid it. Uh -huh. there, there are other adult fiction that I avoid as well, because it's it's almost like coming of age fiction. Only these people are grownups and they ought to know better. Yeah, exactly. You know? exactly yeah. And it's, it's just painful. Well, oh. And that's where the audiobook came in and really highlighted it, because that girl was annoying. Okay, yay. Oh. <laughs> she was annoying. It's like, girlfriend, you have gone to this less mature wisdom planet. and By her own choice, really she wasn't supposed mm -hmm. to be yes. there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and everybody's got more on the ball than her. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but the, it was the narrator, I think, that brought that. She uh. had that special quality to her voice. 
that made that come alive. <laughs> what you mean, like whiny teenage? She should be narrating every teenage not. girl book. Yeah, to every- <laughs> yeah. I I probably could have ignored a little bit of it mm. in my head, right? But just listening to spending two thirds of that book, mm. it was almost a relief when I I said, "Well, I'm not going to have time to finish this book if I keep on with this." <laughs> so I got into the real book, and I ended up crying at the end, like I knew I would oh. anyway. But oh, she just really. What is it? There's a there's a term T S T L, too stupid to live. It's like girl. Have you guys never heard that? No. Oh, yeah. That's T-S-T-L. awesome. Too well, stupid it, to it live. It starts off for and, me. And I don't like first person narratives because so few mm. authors can do it without just giving you too much. So I'm going, oh shoot, here we it, go. It gets very limiting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Here well, we go. And then yeah. she's immediately disobedient. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Here we go with that one too. Because I know this was published in like 1970 or something like that, but that became a trend that I have watched for all these years to where now that's yeah. okay. And and the same thing happens mm-hmm. with her that happens all the time now is that, yes, you were disobedient. You shouldn't have been here anyway. We're going to go ahead and put you into the club and you'll screw up and people will die. It's okay in the end. See, because as a teenager, your actual, the way you felt in your heart was, turns out okay and everything's all right. See, I did not, I I hate those same things that you do, but that is not how I read this No, and story. I see everyone else's head it's shaking and so probably wild. Tanya's ready to jump up and hurt me, but um, there you go. <laughs> you wanted me to be honest. That's, oh no, I love. That's not I love how I read it at the beginning. That is, the first but time I, I went through it. That is not how I read it. But this time, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I still love the story. Uh, it it still catches you. And I think for that audience, this is so tame compared to what young adult fiction is today. Thank you. That yes, I would hands exactly. down hand that Like, isn't this refreshing? <laughs> Yes. This is not Keeper of the Lost Cities. This is so much richer than that. The, the the philosophical ideals that are at play in here are so substantial and meaty that to me, I, I was able to separate from some of the annoyances and just dig into not, okay, she's a teenager. She's acting like a teenager. I have teenagers. <laughs> this is not like, this is how they are. I, I know this. It was a little comforting in that regard. And and that's not the point. The point isn't what are her consequences when she gets back to her home world. The point is what could have gone wrong and didn't because of her sacrificial attitude, ultimately. I strongly enjoyed <laughs> Well, I totally expected you to. <laughs> um, and I think perhaps it's just the stage of life mm-hmm. I'm in. I have a 22-year-old, a 19-year-old, a 21-year-old, and a 17-year-old that are prominent people in my life right now. Just right now. And um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just teasing. And I I love, love, love this stage of life, but it's the idealism, it's the black and white mm-hmm. thinking, it's the risks are worth taking, mm-hmm. the consequences will work themselves out. And I didn't perceive, like, I think a young adult could read this and see that she took some huge risks that could have, she was lucky. Yeah. 
at the end, I felt like she knew she was lucky. We all knew she mm-hmm. was lucky because it, it was set for failure. And we don't – I don't know. Did they say at the end what her consequences were no. going to be? Like I didn't get the sense that it was going to be okay. Yeah. I got the sense that there was going to be some consequences. And some of them were going to be ones that she was going to live with for a really long yeah, time. Yeah, like her record is marred. Well, and her heart is for marred. For sure. Her, for sure. Her idealism, the way she views things, like everything – Everything changed for her. But her approach to everything felt so true to that 18 to 25-year-old age range where they don't have fully formed frontal lobes, which means Mm -hmm. they're emotive. They don't think, right? They're emotive and they don't stop to think before they act. They act before they think. And then they're like, oh, that that was a really bad idea. And we see her thinking that through once she's captured where she thinks, I shouldn't have done that. And I- I think it would be interesting if there was – if the story had expressed more of what the dad was mm-hmm. thinking because I think he was trying to mentor her through it. But I think he was he was fully prepared that he was going to have to lose his daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He did say that. So that's where the book fell down for me was the big theme is that the less advanced societies still have autonomy, mm-hmm. that they have a right to choose to develop on their own. And why is that? Because they they need that to progress. Right. So, but the dad was directing everything. And he's just the next level up. He's not omniscient. Mm-hmm. And so what, what just, I felt like they set it up but couldn't follow through was there was no um, God in mm-hmm. this book mm-hmm. that was omniscient. Mm-hmm. And yet the father took on this role of his choices directing everything. And I thought, if you step back a little bit, he's just the next level. There's possibly a level above him that they, because right. they make such a big deal about Andresians and the um, Imperials not being aware that they are not the apex of society. Right. That the extrapolate to that. The Federation probably isn't aware that they aren't the apex. And they never address that. That Mm -hmm. here, they're coming in and making world-changing, life-changing, society-changing choices for these other worlds, yet they are not omniscient. And that's where the book, where I was like, yeah, they tried to set it up and they set the idea up, but then they, they still played God. I felt like the author left that as an open question in the story. That's what I got when she's asking the questions, even in the prologue. Like, was it really magic? Is there another kind of truth? I think she's wondering. Mm-hmm. See, to me, more. that's a different question. There were, for me, there were two big, big questions in this. And one was free will and whether lesser societies have the right to just develop what is the burden of knowledge do you have a a, not a right but a responsibility to share information if it's going to keep someone from being hurt or annihilated or something like that and then the other question was is faith in symbols the same as faith in truth when when you when you show a symbol to someone and tell them to believe something 
no, you know that it is symbolic of something else, but that person has put their faith in an icon or something, not the actual truth. And so that was where those were the two big, I felt like the first issue was something that a teenager, a young person would struggle with and understand. That second idea might be the next level up of reading and thinking through and could get missed, but that really was, and maybe that's my hot button, is one of those things is having asking people to have faith in things that aren't true and does the end justify the means? Like, you know, the the giving them of the the stones things because it got him to act the way that this higher level society wanted him to act, did that justify a faith in something that wasn't actually true? Yeah. And I still, I still think there was a question though of who ultimately is directing what happens Yeah, because she, right. she doesn't understand how did this happen at the very end that I'm still alive? How right. did these events come this way? Was it just a coincidence? Was it just, or was there some, is there somebody higher like a God that is ultimately figure, you know, deciding what is going to happen. <laughs> See, I guess I missed that question, but it's not like there's a heart like in mismantle where you, you know, you have an obvious, but GK Chesterton, you know, so when, when I forget who found it, but when they found, I think the French found caves that were prehistoric caves and there were paintings on the walls in those caves and quite a bit of discussion came out about what did primitive early man believe about himself and did he believe about that which is greater, God. And Chesterton wrote The Everlasting Man as a response to that. And one of the arguments that he makes in The Everlasting Man is that man is the only creature that looks up. All other animals look down. Man was designed and has even these early cave paintings show that even primitive man worshipped the sun because primitive man knew that there was something greater than him. It was beyond him, so he was reaching for that which was beyond him. And so Chesterton's argument is that man has always been hardwired for truth, and in every age, his capacity to embrace truth has grown and he has become more and more ready such that when Christ himself came, all myths are true because they point to Christ who is truth. And I feel like that is suggested in this as well, that primitive man, no matter where they are in the strata of development, all of these people, all these humanoids are looking for something better and bigger, and all of them need to trust in something. And so we see, I mean, I think that there's no, it's no accident that we have an endearing character who is an imperialist. No society is without dignity and value. Each society has the capacity for compassion and has the capacity for some kind of, uh, some level of truth, shall we say. And I think in this story, that is very suggested that while you're right, Lara, I agree with you that we don't know who's the next level up beyond her dad. The point is, there is another level up. 
And so while they have the, the primitives believing in the, the symbol, the symbol's power is that it directs man to look up. It's not the symbol that matters. It's that the symbol tells him where to look. It tells him to look beyond himself, that there's something greater than himself. So I think there, it's a problem with a metaphor, is that a metaphor ha- uh, makes connections, but it never is that thing. Mm-hmm. Because if it was that thing, you could just use that thing. You you need mm-hmm. a metaphor when there's a gap between right. perception and, and reality, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is, is when the metaphor doesn't come close enough mm-hmm. and what what happens in the Bible, we worship the creation, not the creator. Mm-hmm. And so there's some sense in this that I feel like the question being asked is, is it okay to cause worship in the creation if 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 the vessel isn't ready for a creator yet? And that's where it gets a little shaky for me, where I'm like, I don't think human man can create safe metaphors. God can create stories within stories that point and and are less likely. I think when man creates those metaphors, you have a greater risk of worshiping the wrong thing, worshiping the stone rock instead of telekinesis or whatever, you know, sure. for this book. I, I just never saw this as being an exercise in theology. Well, I think that Laura thought through it more deeply than I did as far as that aspect goes. But for me, it was just, I was just thinking, you're tricking him. Why is that okay? Mm -hmm. Because you're supposed to be so much above everybody, the people Mm -hmm. on the planet, the people who are coming to take over the planet, and you're tricking him. And Mm -hmm. that didn't seem fair. If they're so much superior in order to get what they want, they had to play this petty little game. It, it just didn't set well with me. I hear you on that. I, I, don't, I never like the tricking part. I really do not like the tricking part. And I do think that that aspect is a weakness of the story. I, I definitely own that. It doesn't inviolate how much good I see in the story, though. No, that's just one aspect. I, to me, like I said, it yeah, asks it's just, really good questions. Yeah. To it me, it's does, a technique. It, you know, it's, it, it, it's a mechanism. And I admit right. that one's not a great one. But, you know, when we talk, we're going to do the space trilogy and there's stuff I do not like that Lewis does in the space trilogy for the same reasons. And um, Diane's favorite is the Par- is Paralandra. It's my least favorite of the three. <laughs> so it'll be it's just interesting how different things sit with different readers. I find I just find that fascinating. Well, and when you're talking about fantasy and science fiction, I, there's no way to write a perfect one. Like when you talk no, about time it, travel and so one of the books you mentioned the other day that the, the the time travel mechanism was a little clunky and really time travel is just clunky because there's no, there's is, no yeah. <laughs> right way to do it. <laughs> you can't. No, it's not real. Right. And that's the point, right? That's what Lara's point is, is that when we try to do things that are not real, they're always, there are limits to them. And those limits are going to grate on us. Some of us one way, some another. They they do. It feels untrue. <laughs> so there is oh, there is yeah. a truth to that. There's, yes, <laughs> truth to it, but not being. <laughs> one true. of the things I appreciated, yeah, I, <laughs> that I appreciated about the three different societies was the first society needed knowledge. 
the second society needed a, a wisdom. Well, they were kind of, it was kind of like that, the levels of things they, they needed information to, so, so they could have knowledge. And then the second society had that, had the knowledge, knowledge, but they didn't have wisdom right. yet. Right. And so you, you, you could see the growth and th- that to me was an interesting concept. I liked how that worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you could see individuals within the society moving from knowledge to wisdom. Um, cause I, I felt it was, there were the three societies, but then there were often multiple characters within the society that played as foils, the ones that were moving and ones that weren't, you know, that were gaining yeah. the knowledge or gaining the wisdom. So I, I did like that. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about this story is I feel like it's a, it is a very good mirror for our own culture and the limits of our own culture and our own human propensity to colonize and to try to bring up people we consider who are in a lesser state. The the colonizing, the middle society, I liked where it said that they had lost their naivete, but theirs was the cynical variety. So they were missing something too. It just gave me a lot to think about. You know, maybe we like look back at the Middle Ages and think, oh, they were so backwards. We've come so far. We're so much better than them. But we've lost things that they had that we no longer have. And is the society that Alana comes from, I guess maybe Laura asked this question, but like, what is it missing? Or is there this idea that the author's saying that, oh, no, eventually, because she does bring up like, she, I think she tells Joran, like, things do get better. Like, you go through these hard phases, but eventually, like, you get to this society that's like progressed in amazing ways. I question that. I wonder, are we actually going like in a line up to the right or are we just different? Improved in some ways, but, you know, not as good in other ways. Yeah. So that was a question to that. I thought the book raises that was interesting to think about. I got to have a, a bit of a discussion with another one of our um, Biblio Guides members, uh, Deanna Knowles, um, about this book. So I, I got a pre-discussion with somebody to sharpen my thoughts before. So that may be a little unfair. But we were talking about when is your your responsibility to share information and when do you let someone struggle? When is someone's culture their right to maintain? Mm-hmm. And when do you have the right to step in? And we were talking about the the World Cup where European countries or Western countries went over to a Middle Eastern country that has a different set of values and didn't like how they ran the World Cup. There was a lot of pushback on that. Mm. And the question becomes, is that their right to have an event in their country by their standards of living? Sometimes there are moral questions that maybe you feel like you have a right to say something in, but that's entertainment. Like here, they're coming down and trying to impose the, they're trying to impose ideals on the youngling society, the Imperials are. Do they have that right? But then it becomes, well, what if you have medication and life-saving knowledge? Mm -hmm. Do you have the right to impose that on a country? Mm -hmm. When that knowledge would possibly also come with cultural changes for them. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, it makes me think of Connie Willis's books, her time travel books. It makes me think of a lot of other things where we, what if we had gone back in time and could have cured the bubonic plague? Yes, but what would have been irrevocably different if we had? 
would that different have been a good or a bad? We really have no way of knowing. Well, and I think it comes up in the story multiple times where the question is, is if you were to give that information, would you end up stagnating and harming that culture who didn't have to work for it? Because is it, what's the principle? Mm -hmm. Is the principle that we just give and, and people can accept and take and they can grow from that? Or does there have to be a struggle for certain things for growth to happen and for people to be ready for things? And I just want to kind of go back to that argument that you were saying that you guys felt like it was tricking. And I didn't see it that way. I felt like it was a really strong point because sometimes I think the thing is not the thing. And have you guys ever read the book called Flatland? It's a mathematical classic. So I love that book. So it's been at least... 25 years for me. But in essence, you you have these different mm-hmm. levels, right? And the per- at the very base level, they can't possibly, it's so far out of their construct to understand the next mm-hmm. level up until they get taken to the next level right. up. Or but that but the levels above can see down. It doesn't go both right. ways. And so my understanding was that and even as a parent, I can't always give to my child the information in the way that I see it. I have to give them it to them in the way they see it. And I, I think God does the same thing where God gives us, okay, I've just had this in my own life where I think God is requesting something of me and the way I'm getting the information and what I'm seeing, I kind of have this sense that the thing is not Mm -hmm. the thing, but I can't see the Mm -hmm. thing. But in my mind, that's what was happening in the story is that the father was saying he needs something to believe in and we have to give it to him in a way that he can consume it and understand Mm -hmm. it so that he can make the best decision. Right. And on page 111, she Alana's arguing it and she comes and says, "Oh, but he thinks he can save the world by slaying a dragon with the help of a magic spell." Mm-hmm. And then her father responds, "And he must think that if he ever stops thinking it, it will cease to be true." "Are you saying it's true now?" Ilana, father said soberly, "If we don't believe that it is, we might as well give up right now and go back to the starship." Right. That is a complex conversation where he is suggesting it is true because the thing is not the thing. Exactly. So how many times in life does that happen? Or do we even do that with our own children? Or you sense that like you have an experience and then you look back on it many years later and you think, oh, that's what that was about. So that's how I was interpreting it and seeing it. And I felt like she kept pushing against this wall of we're not giving him the truth. We're not giving him the truth. And I, I never saw the father as playing God. But I did see this as a society that's living by its own rules. And there was a chain of, there was a command structure. And at the end of the day, he is in command and he has to, he will be responsible for her decisions Mm -hmm. too, not Mm -hmm. just her. He's going to answer. And so when he said, I'm making these decisions, it's because I've agreed to this oath. And I come from a religion where we have covenants that we make and we have symbols. So maybe a lot of it resonated in interesting ways. Me too. Did it for you too? (laughs) Because you're a Catholic. When when Laura was talking about icons, I'm like, yeah, but there is power in symbols. I believe in the power of the scapular. I believe in the power of the miraculous metal. These are real things for me. So yeah, I... (laughs) But the thing is not the thing too. I do not think this little piece of metal is doing anything, but I believe that there is something attached to it that is. That's the point. And she had wrong Mm -hmm. ideas about what it was. And he kept telling her, and this is how I feel sometimes about symbols and the power of symbols and promises or covenants, is that it is unexplainable in the human tongue. 
And by the human tongue, I mean any language. And it's this opportunity to grow into something and understanding of greater that's on a God level. Like this society in of itself, to me, felt that it was moving, also growing to the point that it was indefinable. And the father kept not being able to define it. And then she kept having to experience it. And then she's, it's like she got a taste of, oh, there's more. But she never got the full picture because she's not ready. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote that says, why, if nobody believed anything except what they understood, how limited we'd be. Right. And so there, yes. there is that idea that that faith often has to be in something you don't understand. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. It would be knowledge. Right. And, and like this is like the upper room when the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles and they suddenly have an understanding they never had before. Well, and then I think sometimes when you see someone having... And this is my experience. I'm not saying this is true of everyone, just of my experience when sometimes you have a faith crisis, was it because your faith was totally in the symbol or totally in a specific piece and not into that greater thing that you were supposed to be gaining an understanding of? The thing that sat behind the symbol that was supposed to draw you unto mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. thing. Right. Right. And so I, that's what I so that's what she was having. She was conflicted with the mm-hmm. oath. Then she recognized that she broke the oath, but the oath is bigger than rights and wrongs. It's bigger than black and white. It's, And that's where I felt like this book fell short, was if you, oh. if you <laughs> knew that their oath was based on revelation, not just we're the next level and we're imposing our will on two below us, then I, mm. I could have accepted it. I believe that they mm. believe that this was much, much greater than a vow of obedience to another man. I believe that they believe that the power of the oath had a spiritual binding to it. And that is why he did not want her professed until she was ready. The father and the fiance did not want her entering into this right now because she was not ready and she was going to be bound. And I feel like they really believed there was something so much greater at work. Yeah, but then when she broke it, they're just like, oh, well. I don't think they were like, oh, well, I think they were like, let's get through this and let's deal with the consequences after we've saved this world. Maybe they should have gone more in depth there. Yeah. So I felt like it was for the reader. What if you weren't a faith-based person? What would you walk away from having read this story? What if you were a faith-based person and you were struggling with maybe the structures of the religious organization you were Mm -hmm. in? So put aside like what the characters are doing. If you as a reader inter- are interacting with a story, what does it cause you to believe? Like, that's what I walked away with Flatland. It wasn't really about dots and lines. <laughs> what did I learn as a person about the nature of things and God and an eternal progression mm-hmm. from Flatland? Yeah. I just feel like as a reader, you could start a line of questioning about what is greater. So that's where I felt like it didn't fall short. That really stood out to me, too, the importance of that for the characters. Um, this was on page 59. It wasn't till then, I think, that I really took in what it meant. Oh, they are fine words, glorious words, and the feeling you get during investiture is very overwhelming. But it's not until it makes its first real demand of you, against your personal wish, that you understand what the whole thing's about. Above all other considerations means exactly that. It's just as true of small considerations, like being truly afraid for the first time in your life, as of big ones like the decision Allura had faced. That just really stood out to me as something like to think about, again, like as the reader, is there something greater than me that might ask me to do something that I don't want to do? 
And will I be willing to do it because it's the right thing to do? Like that feels like a very religious question and something that, you know, she's facing and that all of us face or we just decide we're going to live for ourselves. Well, and Sarah, I think this is where this book and Star Trek have kind of a genius at asking what you and I would say is a religious question in language that does not feel religious to a non-religious person. So it's not off-putting. Like these are really profound questions that ask about something that's beyond the immediate and therefore have it implies a spiritual value to it, but it allows the reader to enter into it wherever they are and possibly still wrestle with that. Because this really is, the decisions, a lot of them, are life or death. One of the first things she sees on the planet is someone she knows die in order to keep her oath. And all through the story, the decisions are, many of them, life and death. And she doesn't always know when that's the case. But by the end, she knows that almost all of it has been. So I think that, that makes it spiritual in a certain way, whether it's meant to be there or not. I also want to go back to the the shield, you know, that she has the shield that's going to protect her because of her oath. But she's unclear what the mechanism of the shield is. She's unclear of how it works. And she is she can't believe that the shield, in fact, protects her. And and to me, so as a as a Catholic reading it, we, we have a belief in sacraments and sacramentals. Sacraments are acts of will that then unite us with grace in a deeply, profoundly spiritual way. A sacramental is a symbol or an object which can have its own holy value in that it points us to sacraments. It points us to grace and becomes a way in which we are reminded of grace and therefore access grace. And so to me, this shield was like a sacramental. The sacrament of being instituted into the oath And having then this protective thing that had this great substantial power that she does not understand but must believe in, that to me was just a very compelling idea. I I, I don't think it works perfectly, just like I would say about like when Diane and I were talking about sun slower, sun faster, the time travel doesn't work perfectly because going back to what Laura said, nothing outside of truth works perfectly. Only God can tell stories that are perfect. But for a man-made attempt, I didn't think it was so bad an exercise. The other part that I felt like brought in a religious concept, the whole time they were operating that if he had enough fear, Mm -hmm. he would be able to accomplish his quest. And so they were driving on his fear. And the answer is fear is not great enough. There's only one thing that's great enough that will cause a miracle for a sacrifice and right. it's love. And I just, that was really wow. And even Joran felt that like he was so scared. But when he saw that Alana was going to sacrifice herself, the power within him was tenfold mm-hmm. because the emotion inside of him was yeah. love, not right. fear. That was the other place that the book, I think, hit a sore spot for me that I didn't love was that her love for Joran came at the cost of what felt like betrayal of Everick. They were arranged. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. So she has an oath to him. How is that any different than... And that's why when I thought she was... His sister, I was brother. Like, you thought it was a brother. Yeah, right. Totally right. different. 
Right. Haven't but you guys then, got figured it out yet that this kid has had a problem with the oath from beginning to, to end? end. Yeah. Right, right. Even in page 56 where she's saying, oh, maybe I'm now getting a, a glimpse. It didn't seem to help. Mm-hmm. Right. Because she kept wanting to break it, planning to break it, breaking it. It just kept going on and on through the whole book. But that's part of the beauty for me is that she is fallible and and adolescent and unreliable. But that love, except that she doesn't take the consequence. She doesn't have severe consequences. We don't know for breaking. that. We don't know that. Right. Okay. So we don't. So the second book is a failed marriage, <laughs> and she gets kicked out of the. Um, well, everybody says you know, don't read the, the second book, so I didn't. Right. I, 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 oh, yeah, it's terrible. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I do want to say with Everick, I feel like she hadn't maybe had what would be a really powerful love, and she wasn't expecting to know what that would be like. And there is a scene in The Next Generation mm-hmm. where... <laughs> I mean, I know. Okay, I'm, I know. I'm thinking Star there. Trek the whole time. Got to go yeah. there. <laughs> okay. Okay. So here we go. So I watched this as a teenager, and this scene was so impactful mm-hmm. on me and actually helped me through my first mm-hmm. heartbreak. Wesley has fallen in love irrevocably mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. this girl and doesn't work out. And he says to Guinan, I will never love anyone the way I loved her. And I remember in that moment thinking, she's going to say something Mm -hmm. trite. And what she turns to him and says is, you're right. Mm -hmm. You are 100% right. You will never love anyone the way you loved her. Mm -hmm. Every new love will be Mm -hmm. different. It it will never be the same. And in that moment, and he was, I remember he was like aghast, thinking that she would say, oh, you'll find love again. It's going to be totally fine. And I know for me, I remember feeling like I'm never going to love anyone the way I love this person. And when I saw that scene, being able to say, okay, that's true and that's mm-hmm. okay. Like anything else after this point is going to be something different and something new and maybe something I can't imagine. I don't know why because this book was so Star Trekky to me. I was thinking of that scene through the book where she's committed to Everett, but they're not married. Correct. So there hasn't in my mind been yeah. a serious oath. Right. Um, like their boyfriend, right. girlfriend. Okay. That's still up for yeah, grabs. There's no, there's no marriage here yet. She understands. She calls him yes, her fiance. She understands that she's committed to him. However she feels about it. They do. And they do right, talk to each other as though. I don't remember when they, one of them says True. anything about love, but it it's, goes with what Christy was saying was that she kind of goes against all of her oaths the whole time because when she is mm. falling for Joran, she knows it's wrong. And she does that mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, too. I agree with that. Yeah, she okay. does. I guess I saw the ending. Yeah, with the power of love being more an instance of grace. So yeah, she doesn't. We don't see all of her consequences. Maybe some part of us wishes her actions would have stronger consequences, but we don't always have strong consequences for our actions either. We have a gracious God. Who right. Thank. I mean, yes. thank God all the time. <laughs> like, I pray, please, like, all the mistakes I make with my children, like, please let your grace cover yeah. them. Like, I don't want all those consequences. And so that's kind of how I read it. Well, and I'm not saying that she's a great heroine. <laughs> I don't think she's a great heroine. There are so many heroines out there who are so much better than her. <laughs> I mean, she is no Rebecca of York from Ivanhoe. 
It's just that I like the story. I like the way it fits together. I like the questions that it suggests. I like that she is feels very adolescent to me. And like Sarah, the first time I read it, I didn't really realize she was engaged. Like it it did it did not track with me at all until all of a sudden it was a love triangle. Then I was like, oh, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> that is a little so different. I think we agree that <laughs> it's a good book that stimulates good conversation. Yes. There are yeah. parts of it that annoy the heck out of me. <laughs> I'm glad we can agree You're on a- that. <laughs> yes. I just felt like Alana was human and relatable for the age that yes. she was. And so I think anyone that was reading it at that age could find it relatable and they could potentially have some growth opportunities by yeah. seeing mm-hmm. her experiences. And I didn't personally feel like it was over for her in Everick. No. I felt like she had the possibility to grow as a person and yes, and be in that relationship in the correct way is how I saw it. And so I just – that's why I think I liked it is because I saw it more for young adults, not for someone who's had the wisdom of 50-plus years. Yeah. There was another quote. This one so stood out to me. Of all the stages youngling peoples have to go through, I do believe the age of disenchantment must be the mm-hmm. hardest. To see so much by methods you think are scientific yes. – that you've no faith in there being anything you don't yes. see. It must be awful. That is adolescence in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so hard. And But adolescence as a society, yes. too. Yeah. Did anybody come up with the, the whole theme of power? What do you mean by that? Through it. Well, that was the one thing that jumped out. I don't usually come up with quotes in books. Cool. But that jumped out at me in Chapter 2 when they were talking about using the shield. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think this was the father that said, the more power you have, the greater the consequences of the little things. Now, we've always heard, oh, you know, the greater power you have, the greater the responsibility. Right. But I think that kind of like, I, that's like setting up the story. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Now yeah. you understand she's what she's going to just Every little thing doing. matters. Every little thing. Yeah. And then I think... um on using the object, if it were not perilous, it could not be very powerful. Mm-hmm. For does not power carry some sort of danger? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I will agree with some of you ladies that there's some trouble here, too. We don't want to set her up to be a role model for our young people. There are We're very quick here to censor books that, you know, celebrate bad behavior. And there is some of that in here. I didn't think of it that way when I was reading it, but I do agree with you that there's definitely some of that going on here, that this is why this book club is a good thing for mamas to be able to listen to. So mamas can discern for themselves, oh, I might want to read that before I hand that off, or "Mm, I'm not really sure that we need that one in our house, Um, or however it is that you mama feel about it for your family, because that's, that's the point here, is to invite you into our book club so that we can enjoy this time together and also to give you a preview of what's in this book so that you can make the best possible decision for your family. And I'm really glad we disagreed with each other today because I think it's really helpful (laughs) for everybody. I think it's good for our friendship. I think it's good for our book club. And I think it's really good for our listeners to hear that we do not have to agree on everything we're reading and we don't ask you to agree with everything we believe. We just enjoy the uh, the interplay of ideas, the opportunity to exchange our thoughts and grow and stretch and maybe change our opinions a little bit by the end. So 
in that regard, I think this was a very healthy book club. And I appreciate all of you ladies so very much for, for being here today and bringing yourselves to it. And we're all still friends, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. I think we agreed oh. on the essential things that it was a, a yes. book worth discussing, right? I find it fascinating that I'm sitting here like, and then, oh, and then, and then you, and it's like, guys, is this just a book? <laughs> but it's not, is it? Never just never a book. Never just a book. It's not. All of never our... just a book. Right. right. That's what makes book clubs That's what good. Makes it yeah. So yeah. Okay, so next yeah. month is Keeper of the Bees. All right. Christy, we're so delighted to have you join us today. Uh, maybe you'll have to come back again. <laughs> Could you? It was you lots of fun. I could stand. Oh, yay. (laughs) I loved that today we had such a dynamic discussion. I know there was a a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to. And I think there probably a lot of us felt that way. And that is the sign of Mm -hmm. a good book club Mm -hmm. when you're leaving things on the table. So we really do thank our listeners for listening in. And we beg you to join us in the BiblioGuides online community, which is a free Mighty Network. And come chat with us. And we look forward to chatting again.